So Jay, what's with Captain America only dating Carters? He's dated plenty of non-Carters, Miles. There was, oh, let's see, Becky Kwan, Bernie Rosenthal, Connie Ferrari, Rachel Lighton. Wait, Rachel Lighton? Why does that name sound familiar? Probably because she's Diamondback. Diamondback? From the Sons of the Serpent? Oh god, no. No, no, no. The Sons of the Serpent is a white supremacist group of daredevil villains. Diamondback is from the Serpent Society. Okay, and I guess the Serpent Society is... better? Significantly. And Captain America dated her? He did, although he did have some initial misgivings. Because she was a supervillain. Because she had pink hair. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 386 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to a bit of pre-Operation Zero Tolerance Uncanny Grab Bagness. Yeah, it's a bit of a lull at this point. You know, we certainly see this, uh, I would say in the 90s, but honestly often with X-Men in particular and Marvel in general, a lot of the time we are either coming down from a big event or leading up to a big event. And it really feels like that right now. I wouldn't call it killing time because the slow burn build is very active here in, I think we're officially in 1997 at this point. We are. Well, I mean, we're looking at the 1997 annual, so. Uh, Yes, that as well. So, you know, there's some good character work, there's some good uh, foreshadowing, there's some good plot building, there's some good picking up of dropped plot threads, which I always appreciate as somebody who enjoys continuity. Nonetheless, it feels to me a bit like treading water. Now, that's not always a bad thing. It's how you keep from drowning. But it, no, it is. It's how you keep from drowning. It's how you keep story from completely going still between events. But this is very much um, quiet transition from one storyline to the big event that is going to dominate the line. Mm-hmm. We are closing in on OZT, which I'm actually pretty excited about. Like, there's been so much buildup for Operation Zero Tolerance that even though I was just sort of lukewarm on it the first time I read it, uh, I'm really excited to, to get to it, to have all of these plot threads fresh in our minds as Bastion makes his various moves. So this is actually a part of the 90s that I am pretty familiar with, although it's been a minute. And I recall that it it's... Mostly I remember it having been very, very uneven. Like, there were really strong aspects to it. I remember really liking that one hippie cowboy guy that the X-Men worked with briefly. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, it's, uh, it doesn't doesn't go well for him. It's true. We'll We'll very much get to that. But before we get to what's coming, we should get to from where we have come. And thus, previously on X-Men. The X-Men remain mutant heroes sworn to protect a world that hates and fears them. At this point, about half the team is gracing the pages of Uncanny X-Men and the other the pages of X-Men, uh, with some overlap between the books, and half of those guys are off-world, being Rogue, Beast, Bishop, Gambit, and the de-aged Magneto, but he'll turn out to not really be Magneto later, Joseph. Those guys are all in space after being surprised recruited to save what was left of the Shi'ar Empire from the Borg-like phalanx. On Earth, mutants are especially hated and feared these days. 
including the remaining X-Men, consisting of Cyclops, Storm, Phoenix, Wolverine, and Cannonball. Who could hate those nice kids? Well, it turns out a lot of people, because at the end of the Onslaught event, the Fantastic Four and most of the Avengers seemed to be killed. And from what the world could tell, it was mutants' fault. Professor X was even arrested since he kind of was Onslaught. He's been away for a while. He did, however, escape from custody. It was a whole thing. He was with a manite. We're not going to get into that right now. Shortly after Xavier's arrest, the violently anti-mutant presidential candidate Graydon Creed was assassinated, and most of the U.S. correctly assumed that a mutant did it. Although that's complicated, too. Differently complicated, though. That one involves time travel. Sure does. Also, it probably didn't help humans' opinions of mutants that a group of mutants calling themselves Gene Nation recently spent some time murdering dozens of innocent humans. They did that to mark, I believe, the anniversary of the Mutant Massacre, the first major X-Men crossover event. As for who Gene Nation are and where they are now, that is also complicated. We'll just talk about that in the episode. And that brings us to the 1997 Uncanny X-Men annual, Rifts. Not to be confused with a tabletop role-playing system of the same name. This issue is written by Jorge Gonzalez, penciled by Duncan Rouleau, inked by Roy Hubbs, colored by Glennis Oliver, and lettered by Comicraft. Doesn't say Richard Starkings, it just says Comicraft. Comicraft has gained sentience. It is now an independent entity. Just floating around, trailing seraphs, varying its kerning menacingly. You know, there's the old adage not to judge a book by its cover. And I feel like this is a book where that applies, because... God damn, is that an unappealing cover? It's a, it's a weird one, yeah. So we mentioned Duncan Rouleau is the penciler, and as we discussed, I want to say the last episode, Duncan Rouleau's style works really, really well when he can go hard cartoony, like in the Juggernaut one-shot, and in other issues, like when he did X-Men Unlimited number 15, or to an, a lesser extent this, his style just looks wrong like people just don't look the way they should but he's a very competent comics artist he's great at pacing and composition and his people like they look very dynamic when they're posing and stretching and skewing in the ways that they do but they also look you know off it looks like he's trying to do what umberto ramos does and not quite achieving it you know, that actually is a really good parallel. Umberto Ramos' style is uh, definitely akin to, to Rouleau's. Chris Bocello, less so, as much as I often compare Ramos and Bocello. It's like a spectrum. It's like, I don't know, it's like the Punisher, Daredevil, and, and Spider-Man. There's just a, a spectrum of, um, instead of morality, a spectrum of art exaggeration. Well, Ramos and Bocello draw some facial features very similarly. So I think that's the point where they overlap. But their, their actual storytelling and composition is very different. Yeah. And Rouleau, I don't know. I mean, I I love half of Rouleau's art. I dislike the other half, and that can often be even in the same panel. It's a strange thing to experience. Yeah, it's, it's very inconsistent. Yeah. Well, anyway, we are in Uncanny X-Men. This is Uncanny X-Men Annual 1997, but the Uncanny team is in space, because at this point, finally, Uncanny X-Men and Adjectiveless X-Men have really split. You're, they're not just alternating issues in one big story anymore. So that team of Rogue, Gambit, Bishop, Joseph, and Beast, yeah, they're, they're, they're not around here. Instead, we have Cyclops, Phoenix, Storm, and Cannonball. Wolverine is, I don't know, off giving romantic advice to someone, probably. Wait, don't those guys have their own annual? 
Uh, you would think, and here they are just muscling in on this one. I don't know. It's the 90s. Stuff is complicated. So we start out in the sky above an African village, which, to the credit of Gonzalez, is is at least located somewhere. It doesn't have a name, but it's it's in Sudan. It's in, in, in a specific region, and we've got an actual landmark it's associated with, which honestly... It's a lot better than Marvel usually does when it comes to locating places in Africa. Right. Usually it's like, you know, the town of Africa in the province of Africa, in the state of Africa, in the nation of Africa, in the continent of Africa. It's just one big Africa. Well, in this more specifically named place near the Salima Oasis, we open in Medius Robot because the X-Men are fighting a bunch of yellow beetle looking mechs in the sky in this badass two-page spread. It... It looks really cool. Rouleau does draw some kick-ass action. So these mechs are razors, and they are they are the piloted sort of animate weapons of humanity's last stand, a terrorist organization that is basically just aggressively and violently anti-mutant. This is the same organization that Cannonball and Husk infiltrated a couple annuals ago. Yeah, they're run by... Simon Trask, the crappiest Trask. We will also see him after this in continuity, but before this in the podcast, in that Punisher story where the Punisher teamed up with Carl the Executioner. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, these are also the guys who indirectly started a nuclear war, or, well, almost indirectly started a nuclear war in the Magneto miniseries that actually was about Joseph. Yeah, yeah, Humanity's Last Stand is just terrible. They're kind of like the Friends of Humanity, but they're much more militarized and have much higher tech and are less sort of like salt-of-the-earth kind of assholes. Uh, but, you know, they're still one of the many anti-mutant organizations run by prominent anti-mutant antagonists in 90s X-Men. Well, and they are sufficiently equipped to wipe out an entire village fairly summarily. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty rough. We don't see a lot of the carnage on page, but I'm kind of okay with that. Like, the captions and the characters' reactions really do just sell the scale of the suffering of innocence just being mowed down by these giant gun mechs. Yeah, given Rouleau's art, I feel really okay about that choice. Speaking of Rouleau's art, there's this scene where Cannonball is blasting, you know, being nigh invulnerable, squinting with one eye and his other eye bulging out and his mouth is open to like half the size of his face. And then he gets surprised by an unexpected ally calling out to him and his mouth turns into this tiny little black dot with these narrowed eyes with one ultra raised eyebrow. Like everyone's face is just made of rubber in a Duncan Rouleau comic. And sometimes that's great, like here. Other times it just sort of makes you feel queasy. Uh, that uh, ally who calls to him is Boost. Boost is a mutant who looks kind of like Bloodscream from the old Wolverine comics, um, but isn't. He is not a vampire. He's kind of the reverse of a vampire, in fact. His power is to phase into people and enhance their powers while he's there, which leads to Cannonball uttering the memorable line. Incredible. He's inside me. And I... I feel somehow energized... Okay, Sam, don't talk like you're all surprised and this is your first time. You and Roberto da Costa have been buds for, like, a while. Uh, roommates even. Pals. You know, guy pals. It's just... Okay, the panel, though, is so great, because Cannonball's saying this incredibly euphemistic, sexual-seeming thing about this dude being inside him and how incredible it is, and, like, it's just a silhouette of his face with his hair all standing straight out, and his eyes, like, super bulging and a tiny little surprised mouth. Like, I don't think 
any of the people involved in this comic intended this to be as much about anal sex as it clearly, clearly is, but it clearly, clearly is. I feel like this is the kind of thing that gets written entirely innocently, and because everyone involved knows the intention behind it, none of them see what's actually there. Well, I guess Boost himself is somewhere in the middle of the Kinsey scale, because he also has a life partner who's this hissing green monster lady named Tether, and she's got a head fin and an electric tail, and she kind of looks like the savage dragon. Uh, also, she talks real fun. You wish to prove your metal flesh meat? Then come, there's still plenty more enemies for us to slay. Oh man, I like how you're basically doing Feral's voice, but if Feral was a snake lady instead of a cat lady. Yeah, this this version hurts less. Dig it, dig it. Uh, this couple is fun. Uh, Tether and Boost, like, they're so different from each other. Uh, they actually remind me a lot of Knock and Winloss, who are a couple from the Star Wars comics. There's, like, this brawny Trandoshan lizard lady and her much smaller, fast-talking human inventor husband. They're monster hunters, and I love them a lot, and this reminds me of them. So the, the Razors from Humanity's Last Stand, uh, retreat, and that gives the village's leader, Degard, a chance to fill us in, um, on, on what's going on. And it's complicated. There's been a lot that's happened since we last saw any of these characters. Oh boy, that there has. So, in talking about that, I want to talk about the art first, because Degard's design is cool. He's an older guy uh, with dark skin, and he's got these like bits of metal armor all over his body, on his forehead, on his forearms... But he's also covered by flowing robes. Visually, he's portrayed very much as a warrior who has tried to transition to a life of peace. You know what he looks like? What's that? He really looks like he comes from the Ascani future. He kind of does. Yeah, I agree. He's got that kind of like science fiction futuristic mystic thing going on. The combination of futuristic and like very, very non-technological. And that all ties in, like, the warrior to man of peace thing, the spiritual and technological mix. See, Degard is is a member of Gene Nation. Gene Nation? Oh boy. Jay, do you want to do this or shall I? I feel like we're we're both going to need to chip in on this one. So Gene Nation are... The, the very, very basic explanation of Gene Nation is that they are the descendants of the Morlocks. The Morlocks, of course, being a bunch of mutants who couldn't fit into human society. They couldn't pass as well as, say, the X-Men can. And so they lived under the sewers, at least until most of them were slaughtered in the mutant massacre. Now, later on, a fellow named Mikhail Rasputin, the older brother of Pyotr Rasputin, Colossus, and Ileana Rasputin Magic, showed up. And, um... He told the Morlocks that he was going to take them to to some kind of paradise, and he ended up warping them to a weird hostile dimension where time was condensed and passed extra quickly, and that's where Gene Nation comes from. Yeah, that's a dimension called The Hill, and it's where Storm spent her time in her vaguely recent miniseries written by Warren Ellis. So Gene Nation popped up back on Earth, and they specifically popped up as a terrorist group that was attacking humans to mark the anniversary of the mutant massacre. Makes sense, right? So then the X-Men inevitably fought them. And Storm, when she went to the hill, took them over. The same way she had taken over their Morlock ancestors in a trial by combat way back in Claremont's run. So she has now taken over this group of people by fighting twice. What she's also done twice is 
kind of forgetting about the group she took over shortly after taking it over and mostly leaving them to fend for themselves and to get wiped out. This one has massive Wrath of Khan vibes. Like, I really, I really wanted um, Degard to at some point yell, This is Seti Alpha 5! <laughs> right? Um, because she, she not only abandoned these guys, she took them and just sort of dropped them off on another continent and was like, There you go, you know, start your own village, you'll be, you'll be fine. And just fucked off. And their satellite communications have been cut off for more than a month, and she just never noticed. She wasn't checking. To be fair, the X-Men do suck at phone calls, but this reminds me of another Duncan Rouleau illustrated comic. This reminds me of X-Men Unlimited number 15, where Chris Bradley, after being buds with the X-Men who said they'd help him out after he got the legacy virus, was kind of ignored by them. They have, to their credit, been very busy with Onslaught. That's been real fucked up, but it's really caused them to drop the ball. Okay, but Chris Bradley has a family and a support system that is not the X-Men. This is an entire village that they just sort of dumped. Yeah. At the end of her miniseries, uh, Storm actually brought all of the members of the Hill to the village that she spent some time in way back in Life Death 2. That was a village where they'd been relying more on unreliable technology rather than traditional farming techniques, and so they were starving. And she brought Gene Nation there to, like, help fix the place up. Now, at the time, it was implied in one of Warren Ellis's characteristic rushed endings that the old villagers were still there and Gene Nation was going to work with them. In this story, it's just Gene Nation, so I'm not really sure what's going on there. Again, this is SETI Alpha 5. <laughs> yep. So... Things things seem to be going marginally better. The The Razors have retreated... But a new player appears, that being Havoc's new brotherhood. Right. So recently we know that Dark Beast, the version of Beast from the alternate universe, the Age of Apocalypse, brainwashed Havoc and turned him into a bad guy. And then Havoc, like, got unbrainwashed and captured Dark Beast and worked with Dark Beast's ally Fatal, and now he's running a new brotherhood. Not a brotherhood of evil mutants, mind you, just, you know, a brotherhood. Like, true neutral, maybe. I don't know. I guess more like chaotic neutral based on how they do things. But he is here to help. He's here to help for some definition of help. He's specifically here to help fight the humanity's last stand. But what he actually ends up doing is immediately picking a fight, uh, fight with Scott. Yeah, he gets really defensive when Cyclops is freaked out by Havoc hanging out with horrible people like Dark Beast and being all harsh and stuff. Yeah, I would be freaked out too. Don't hang out with Dark Beast. He's not a good friend. He's really not a good friend. Like, he will literally always betray you, and usually pretty quickly. So I discovered something weird, unrelated to all of that. So this is Uncanny X-Men Annual 1997, right? Or, as they put it, apostrophe 97. In issue number 97 of Uncanny X-Men, although it was just X-Men at the time, so not annual, which is regular number 97, that was a story called My Brother, My Enemy, where Cyclops and Havoc got in a big fight. So, Uncanny X-Men number 97, the Summers' fight. Uncanny X-Men Annual 97, the Summers' fight. Is it a big conspiracy? I'm going to say yes. Dick Sargent, Dick York, Sergeant York. Havoc realizes that perhaps yelling and brawling is not necessarily the best way to form an alliance. I've got to get a grip and put the reins on this petty sibling rivalry between me and Scott. No need to be so belligerent. 
Last thing I want is to come off as an obnoxious terrorist. After all, I'm one of the good guys. It's hard, though, because every time I'm with Scott, I just see red. <laughs> Get it? Get it? Yes. But when Havoc talks to Gene Nation, he is in full-on jetpack-hovering messiah mode. To those seeking a better way of life, I offer freedom from this heel of oppression you've been forced to endure, as well as a chance to take charge of your own destinies. Is that not better than anything Storm and the rest of the self-righteous X-Men could ever hope to provide for you? Sometimes it seems kind of like you can tell how megalomaniacal somebody is based on how many of their words and their speech bubbles are italicized. A lot of those words were italicized. Hold up. Dark Beast, meanwhile, is filling his thought bubbles with ambiguous villain splaining about how he'll get his revenge on Storm and on Mikhail Rasputin for fucking with his elite genetically engineered warriors. Right, so one of the things to remember when you're looking at Gene Nation continuity and its ridiculousness is that when Dark Beast came to Earth-616 from the Age of Apocalypse, he was jaunted back in time, and one of the things he did while he was waiting for the present was to genetically engineer the Morlocks. So Gene Nation are essentially the souped-up, many-generations-evolved-later versions of his creations. He considers them his toys, essentially— Obviously, this is a complete retcon. Like, nobody knew about the Age of Apocalypse or Dark Beast or anything like that when the Morlocks were created. Is it a good retcon? Eh. So I actually really dislike it as a retcon, and the reason for that is that the Morlocks originally were mutants with visible enough mutations that they couldn't pass as human or were generally rejected by human society. And the idea of that of that, of, of that being a refuge for mutants from all walks of life for whom this occurred was really good and I think made a lot of sense and made the Morlocks as a group much, much more interesting than, than making them, like, one genetic cluster. You know, that is a really good point. I, uh, I, yeah, I think I completely agree with you. It also reminds me of how well done the Morlocks were back in that old X-Men show, The Gifted. Like, that show was not necessarily peak television, but goddamn, it just got a lot of aspects of the X-Men. Wasn't that old. Yeah, I guess it was just a few years ago. It was pre-pandemic. It was in the before times. Fair, fair. It was really, really, really interesting, and the things it got, it got beautifully. Still the best version of Polaris. Oh, absolutely. Easily, yeah. This whole thing with Dark Beast creating the Morlocks, that was alluded to way back in X-Men Prime number 1, immediately following the Age of Apocalypse. So that's been in the works for a while, but... Again, maybe it's one of those bits of continuity we just don't really worry about, kind of like back when Cannonball was supposed to be an external. Let's just let that one drop. Oh, it's also worth mentioning regarding Dark Beast that he spent the last very long time with the X-Men impersonating Standard Beast, whom he had imprisoned. Yeah, and he still looks like Standard Beast, having altered himself to be less gray and more blue, but now we know he's Dark Beast because he's wearing those metal banded pants that Dark Beast always wore. They look very uncomfortable. You know, he makes sacrifices for fashion. But my point here is that the X-Men have even more reason than usual to mistrust him. Yeah, yeah, Scott and Jean especially. I mean, this is the guy that kidnapped and almost killed one of their oldest friends and pretended to be him for a while. Well, and this is a guy with a particularly creepy fixation on the two of them who were among his—well, Jean at least was among his favorite test subjects back in AOA. True. Very true. The X-Men and the Brotherhood do, however, agree to cooperate with a hovering handshake between Havoc and Storm. 
And interestingly, Talon and Boost, that couple of Gene Nation members that we met earlier, they respectively agree with each of them. Talon with Havoc and Boost with Storm, with their perspectives. So it sort of symbolizes the battle for the hearts and the souls of Gene Nation that the X-Men and the Brotherhood are competing in. It's a little deft bit of storytelling. It's sort of funny that they're assuming that Gene Nation would would go with nonviolence given their background. You know, that's true. But at the same time, this group of Gene Nation people, of Gene Nationals, if you will— are ones from the Hill, and not everybody on the Hill, that dimension that Mikhail ruled, not everybody was necessarily very good at violence. Like, a lot of the people there who were not suited for violence mainly just suffered and died a whole lot. So I don't think we can assume that everybody is rah-rah murdery the way that the Gene Nation terrorist group led by Marrow was. Yeah, that's an excellent point. These aren't necessarily entirely the same. The Summerses have their own debate. Tensions just keep rising between Scott and Alex, as Alex says. Get with the program, Scott. It's a dirty, nasty little world out there. And if we want to survive in it, we're going to have to play it just as rough as the bad guys. You're wrong, Alex. There has to be another way. Man, if you really believe that, you're a bigger fool than I ever imagined, big brother. The Razors do indeed return the next day. And the heroes teamed up totally kick their asses, using a pretty badass complicated team-up move. But not until after the Razors have killed all of the injured, where they were, they thought, outside of the range of the battle. Oh, it's brutal, yeah. Again, we don't really see any of that visually explicitly. But the way the characters are racing to save these refugees... Uh, the way they fail, the way Rouleau draws their faces just dropping as they realize that they're not going to be there in time. It's very, very effective. Like, I know we talk about show, don't tell in comics, but in here, I think tell, don't show actually works a lot better. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Scott and Alex once again get into a fight, this time like a physical fist fight, over whether to execute the humanity's last stand prisoners that they take after they win the fight, the ones who have been slaughtering innocent mutants. Dark Beast ends the argument summarily by showing up with a giant light bazooka with which he apparently disintegrates all of the prisoners, and tells us via a sidebar with Fatal that he's actually teleported them away to be experimented on, but no one except for Fatal knows this. I don't know if being disintegrated by Dark Beast or being teleported away to his experimentation pens is worse. I, I don't think either is great. No. Degard, the leader of the Gene National Refugees here, is fed up with this bullshit. They don't want to be anybody's pawns. They don't want to be allies who go with the philosophy of the X-Men or with the Brotherhood. They just want to do their own thing. They're just going to stay right here and rebuild and put up the shattered razors on spikes around the village to scare off anybody else who might mess with them and do their own thing. So Boost and Tether, on the other hand, are fed up with this situation and they decide they're going to get out of there. So they they basically ask the Brotherhood for a ride to anywhere else and the Brotherhood's like, yeah, sure, come on, come along. And it would be easy to assume that these characters will never be seen again, as so many characters in stories like this are never seen again. But in a nice little bit of continuity, in the recent run of S.W.O.R.D. in the modern X-Men universe, 
when Fabian Cortez was kicked off the team, a boost was floated as a potential replacement for him since he also has mutant power augmenting powers. I love little touches like that. I love just these little reaches back into obscure bits of continuity that, of course, the characters would know about having lived those adventures themselves. And Storm agrees with Degard's read. She basically says, yeah, um... I am no good to Gene Nation, I defer to you, you're in charge now. I don't know that this will necessarily keep her from making exactly the same mistake yet again, but, you know, it's good that she at least acknowledges it, again. I'm just saying, like, when Aurora says that she'll totally take that puppy for walks and clean up after it and she'll do a good job this time, maybe we just shouldn't believe her. No puppies for Storm. And now we move on to Uncanny X-Men number 345, titled, Moving On. Hey... This issue is plotted by Scott Lobdell, scripted by Ben Robb. It's drawn in two parts. Part one is penciled by Joe Madureira and inked by Tim Townsend. Part two is penciled by Melvin Ruby and inked by Juan Velasco and Harry Condelario. The whole thing is colored by Steve Bucciolato and Team Buse, lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Colia Fuse. So, Madureira and Ruby are really, really different artists. I don't know how I feel about this pairing. What do you think? Uh, it's, it is odd, I agree. I mean, thankfully, part one and part two of this story are kind of different scenes, at least. Like, there's not a lot of overlap between what's going on, so that works, but you're totally right. I mean, we've talked so much about Joe Matarera's art style, it's extremely manga-influenced. Melvin Ruby, he kind of reminds me of, who is that artist that did Factor X and a little bit of X-Factor? Steve Epting. Right, yeah, it's a similar, very detailed, realistic style. Yeah, I mean it's it's not bad. It's it's an odd break, and it's it's the the break into part one and part two isn't between really between story segments um, because it is there are there are sort of two separate stories in here. Um, it's just kind of the middle of the issue. I mean, it's between scenes at the very least, I suppose. Now for the important part, this this issue is Maggot's first appearance. Um, alas, it is really just a very very brief appearance. The majority of the story is about X Men and Shi'ar space. But um, should we talk a little bit about Maggot? Let's do, yeah. So Maggot is going to be a member of the X-Men for quite a while. He's going to be heavily involved in Operation Zero Tolerance. Um, to this day, he's around. He just had an X-Men Unlimited story written about him in the online-only Marvel Unlimited app. Uh, despite being kind of mostly forgotten in between those two eras. But I really like Maggot. Maggot's powers are freaking weird. And Jay, yes. I feel like you and I, yeah, we're both on record as enjoying weird and gross mutant powers. We've talked a lot about that in our Generation X coverage. And his is both. Oh, yeah. The deal with Maggot is that his digestive system is two enormous carnivorous slugs that exist outside of his body, and which he has named Enie and Meanie. And they're really cool-looking slugs, too. They have, like, armor plates, like a carapace, and they have a whole bunch of eyes. They're super creepy-looking, but they're also kind of cute. Yeah, I really, really like them. And I I love the strangeness of that power and just sort of the, the unprecedentedness of it. It totally is, yeah. Also, this isn't going to come across very much in an audio medium, but Maggot's name is spelled wrong consistently. It's M-A-G-G-O-T-T. That is too many T's for the word maggot, and I have no idea why it's spelled that way. Remember how Richter, whose surname is spelled the same way as Richter Scale, to which his codename refers, changed the spelling for his codename? I I do indeed. Okay, so there is some precedent. I suppose that's true. 
As for Maggot himself, his own design is awesome. Yeah, he's got he's got very dark blue skin, a shock of white hair, red eyes. He's 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 just enormous. Um, that that might be to some extent a byproduct of being drawn by drawn by Joe Madrera, but the sense of scale that goes with him is pretty substantial. Um, he's got got a huge trench coat with giant shoulder armor, and of course his his multi-eyed slug grub creatures. Yes. He is a great character. He is an underappreciated character. I think he was, like, unceremoniously killed off way back in the Weapon X series in, like, the aughts or something like that. I'm glad he's back. He was, yeah. I think he might actually have been the first casualty of Neverland. Oh, man. I always hate it when they do that to characters where, like, a writer wants to kill somebody for shock value, and so they just they just pick a character who everybody knows but not a lot of people really care about. That feels like such a cheap trick. One of his slugs, I believe, briefly survived him. Uh, yes, yes, that is very true. Oh man, there's so much Maggot ahead of us, and I am legitimately excited about that. But, how does Maggot burst onto the scene, much as his Maggots burst out of his chest? Okay, so remember Sister Maria de la Hoya? Uh, I, I do, but it's been a little while, so maybe we should recap. Okay, she's a Guatemalan nun who found Joseph after he crash-landed on Earth. Yeah, he stayed with her well before he knew he was a de-aged Magneto, but not really, and was just sort of a peaceful, very handsome man. Right. Now, we open with her being chased through the jungle somewhere in Guatemala by a large metal individual who demands to know where Joseph is. Whom, who this large metal individual is, is never, ever established. He never gets named, he never gets described, he never comes up again. He's got a weird, hard-to-read font, and he looks kind of like a robot gorilla? Uh, I don't know. I I feel like we should come up with a backstory for this guy. What do you think? We know he's mad at Joseph, and thus maybe mad at Magneto. We know he chases nuns. His character design has very slight Mignola vibes. That's true. Mignola does really enjoy drawing robot gorillas, and frickin' more power to you, Mike. I don't know. Here's my take. Uh, Magneto, when he went to the Savage Lands, you remember how he, like, used some mysterious machinery to mutate some of the people in the Savage Land and turn them into mutates, and then, like, he was their boss? Yes. Well, this is a robot gorilla, so maybe there was, like, I don't know, a gorilla somewhere, and Magneto's like, hey, maybe I can make you more of a mutant using science stuff. Have some robot parts. Have a terrible font. And um, now this guy is really mad at Magneto, and he heard that Joseph is around, even though Magneto is supposed to be dead. And so now he's using his enhanced gorilla senses to um, find anybody who's interacted with Joseph. And this nun still smells like Joseph because he smells like a like an autumn day, and they probably bones down. Although maybe not, because she's like Catholic. They're not supposed to do that because she's a nun. He smells like magnets. He smells like magnets. And the robot gorilla can totally sense the smell of magnet on this nun lady, and thus. Anyway, it is about to kill her when two somethings leap onto it and immediately gnaw their way into it. They are big, weird, alien, slug-looking things, and these, we will later learn, are eeny and meeny, and they are the property of a large, friendly, but vaguely threatening blue man, who, as it turns out, is also looking for Joseph, and that is all the maggot we get this issue. Well, we do get the fact that he has a thick comic book style Australian phonetic accent and dialect. That's weird. I thought he was South African. Uh, yes, he will be. Right now, he's just in good company with uh, Pyro and early cartoon Wolverine. Um, yeah, for some reason, he was originally intended by Lobdell to be Australian. Uh, or possibly a Kiwi. I'm not sure which. I know there's a rich cultural and linguistic distinction that I do not sadly fully understand. 
Oh man, so many people are going to send us angry letters from New Zealand now. I'm sorry. I want to learn more. I just, I'm just very tired right now. Uh, but later on, he will indeed be a South African character, which is cool because there aren't very many of those. And in fact, when Joe Kelly takes over writing one of the X books, um, he will, he actually went to great lengths to put some authentic Afrikaans slang into Maggot's dialogue. So neat. Meanwhile, in Shi'ar space, the rest of the issue. So the X-Men join the Shi'ar in mourning the dead post-Phalanx invasion. And man, we talked about how that four-part X-Men versus the Phalanx in the destroyed Shi'ar Empire story did not effectively sell the scale of the tragedy. And to this issue's credit, it immediately does. Just with one big panel of the shattered Imperium, of the shattered palace and buildings around it, and all of these Shi'ar refugees just like clearing the rubble away by hand. That's all that story would have needed, and here we finally get it. Now, all well, almost all of the X-Men are, are at this banquet. And Joseph is really, really bothered by the general idea of a celebration or, or something that, that seems so formal and festive to acknowledge loss. In general, he has a lot of trouble with the idea of moving on. How are they supposed to cope with a tragedy like that? Knowing that the same forces that took their loved ones still exist out there. How? And after some more conversation, Rogue tells Joseph that once they get back to Earth, she's finally going to tell him about the man he was so he can get to be the man he is which transitions beautifully to what Gambit is up to. Gambit is the only X-Man not at the banquet because he is outside burying the dead, and we get our first really big hint as to what he's been hiding. The narration tells us. Lucky for him, his teammates know nothing of his darkly checkered past, the past he can never forget. Specifically, the unholy alliance he once struck with one of his friend's most sinister foes. His shameful role in one of the greatest tragedies his kind, Homo Superior, has ever endured. For if they did, he fears, he would likely be counted among the most reviled men in history. And this is picking up on a plot thread that we haven't seen touched in a while. We know that Gambit has a dark past and he's terrified of anybody finding out. That's been a part of his presence for a long time. We know that whatever he did or whatever is lurking in that past, was bad enough to basically send Rogue running from the X-Men for months. And in that same issue where Rogue left, we had a reference to Sinister, like we see here. That was way back in X-Men Volume 2, number 45, like a full year and a half earlier. So the Sinister connection has been alluded to before, but I think this may be the first hint we've gotten that Gambit's crimes were somehow related to the Mutant Massacre, which nicely bridges us to the story we just got done covering in that Uncanny X-Men annual. And meanwhile, back inside, Beast and Trish Tilby flirt and deliberate rekindling their relationship when they get back to Earth. And they still love each other, but as Trish points out, it just never ends well. I still feel like we missed a few chapters in the history of their relationship and its ups and downs. That's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, sometimes when you don't go into great detail about an event that's happened in the lives of characters that just sort of makes the world feel more lived in. But I don't know. I'm just confused. I feel like I don't really understand what happened with Beast and Trish. Well, Miles, some characters prefer to keep their personal lives off panel. Oh, you know, I can respect that. Privacy is important. Uh, finally, they are sent home in one of the best ships in the Shi'ar fleet, and they are escorted you know, with, with great honorifics by Deathbird, mainly so that she and Bishop can keep flirting, which they certainly do. 
Oh, man, they totally do. Deathbird, of course, is Empress Lalandra's sister, who's been a bad guy, she's been a good guy, she's a badass. And, God, Melvin Ruby, what what are you doing? We've seen Melvin Ruby draw sexy characters before. I remember in the last X-Men space arc, we complained that he drew Lalandra in sexy peril with all of her clothes ripped up and stuff. But his Deathbird, and to an even greater extent his Bishop, are just unconscionably sexy like it's maybe too much sexy i don't know if i can handle this much sexy bishop is sitting here reading a book uh, it turns out about Deathbird's history i guess that book is on the ship while wearing this open sleeveless robe and these tiny little undies and he's all beefy and he's all smoldering and then Deathbird comes in having changed into something more comfortable and it's like this skimpy robe thing that shows a lot of flesh as well and they're all flirting and and the sexuality is just smoldering on the page and i think i got first degree burns from it and it hurts a little and i should run that under some cold water probably uh she she in fact explicitly describes herself as having slipped into something more comfortable and she is she is here to try to convince bishop to go do some fucking on the holodeck i mean she says it's sparring but yeah we know what she means no she is clearly here to invite bishop to do some fucking on the holodeck like this is not ambiguous mm, like wharf and wolverine exactly Bishop, for his part, is more interested in reading about and discussing her sordid past. And this whole issue has a very strong learn from the past or be condemned to repeat it motif going. And Bishop's actually kind of a cool choice to pair with Deathbird in that regard, you know, aside from their almost excessive amounts of chemistry, because, of course, his past is our future, and he's had to sort of recreate himself after completing his purpose for coming back to the present, having already unlearned what he thought was true about the present from when he was in the future, which is his own past. It's a little complicated. Okay, it's a lot complicated, but it works thematically. Like, I find myself immediately loving Lucas Bishop and Deathbird as a couple. Yeah, after this and their, their last interactions, I ship it surprisingly hard. As clearly do they. And as did Chris Claremont at one point, I recall that in X-Men The End, the big, long, way too long series he wrote as like sort of the last hypothetical X-Men story, one of our main characters is in fact the daughter of Deathbird and Bishop. Alas, before they can get their weird on in this issue, the ship is rocked by something external, and it turns out it's been caught in the wake of a gargantuan vessel, which like them is headed to Earth. And it looks fucking awesome. I find myself loving Melvin Ruby's art in this. Uh, the ship is not unconscionably sexy unless you're into that sort of thing, but it does look badass. Ruby captures the sense of scale. Like, it just makes the ship that Deathbird and the X-Men are in look like a speck, look like a gnat. And it's also got a lot of, like, fiddly technological bits, which I always appreciate. It just looks like this freaking leviathan of a spaceship. So what is the deal with this big ship? Who Whose ship is it? Well, Deathbird and Bishop are our ships, so I guess this one isn't ours right now. Uh, we get some contradictory answers later, but what this ship mostly is is a plot device just to destroy the Stargate the X-Men were going to go through to get back to Earth. Like, this ship primarily exists to keep them stranded in space until Operation Zero Tolerance is over so that they're th not there to help. So you could say it's on a mission of mercy. It's protecting them from the crossover. Well done, giant sexy ship. Don't sexualize the ship. I was trying not to, but... Damn it, Melvin Ruby, it just all seeps through. Everything is sexy. Melvin. And among the sexy things are you, our listeners, and you have questions. Paul Aronofsky asks on Patreon, I know Magneto wasn't originally Jewish, but as it became more canonical, has he ever spoken Yiddish? How deeply do they explore his Jewish heritage? 
If you were introduced into the MCU, would updating the character to fit a more modern timeline be erasure, or would it be better to change him and showcase more characters like Kitty Pride outside of Holocaust drama? Oh, that is a fantastic question, and it's one that's been sort of knocking around X-Men conversations for a very long time right now and doesn't have a single, like, clear answer. So, I'll, first of all, I'll answer the part that does have an answer, and that's that the comics have been pretty light in exploring or discussing Magneto's Judaism. Um, he has not spoken Yiddish on the page, as far as I know. Um, we also know he's not very observant, that he knows Hebrew, he has spoken Hebrew on page. Um, that he was at least somewhat Zionist in the late 40s, and that he has attended at least one Holocaust survivors meetup, and that's honestly about it. As far as keeping Magneto a Holocaust survivor, I really, really don't know. So the politics of changing a character who's part of a marginalized group are complicated and they're delicate, and it's not like the X-Men are replete with Jewish representation. So I think it would depend a lot on how it was handled and what, if anything, came to fill that void. Honestly, given current politics and the current tenor of public conversations around the Holocaust, I would actually be particularly reluctant to change that now, even more so than I would have been six years ago. And on that note, it's also, if you're looking at it in terms of timeline, very, very easy to just make part of Magneto's mutation involve slow aging. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guessed it a little while ago on the Superhero Ethics Podcast, and this was one of the big things we talked about, and we kind of got to a similar point. This is really complicated, but it's also really important to handle it in a thoughtful fashion. And the slow aging thing maybe would be a way to do that. Michael Wells asks on Patreon, has anyone ever actually recovered from the legacy virus? So lots of people technically recover from the legacy virus, but that was because when the legacy virus was cured by Colossus blowing himself up to distribute the cure that Beast created, uh, the legacy virus just went away in everybody worldwide. So, you know, characters like Farrell or Chris Bradley, um, although I think they both ended up dying for other reasons. But that's probably not what you mean. As far as characters who have actually recovered, I could only find one, and that is Maverick. So... In Maverick Volume 2, Number 1, which is to say the first issue of his series as opposed to the one-shot that came before it, he, Maverick actually died of the legacy virus, but a character named Elena Ivanova used her telepathic powers to convince him to, like, not die all the way. So he was only mostly dead. Only mostly dead. And after that, Maverick's healing factor was able to push the virus into remission. I don't know if that exactly counts as recovery— but Maverick at least handled having the Legacy Virus a lot better than anybody else did, until, of course, the Legacy Virus was cured in literally everybody. And, of course, in X-Men the Animated Series, Wolverine's healing factor allowed him to fully recover from the Legacy Virus and to create antibodies to help other mutants recover, which is a very X-Men the Animated Series solution. I really respect the Animated Series for making dark stories less dark and having, like, basically nobody die— and still having them feel like the stories that they were referencing. They did the same thing with the Dark Phoenix saga. It worked super well. Yeah, it was very, very deftly handled. Also, great theme music. Uh, you know. Now, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come from acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. And today we hear from a character who's already been inside both Cannonball and Storm, that being Sexy Boost. Come, loves. Let's send these curs packing as only mutants can. You've got your powers, and I can make myself useful-like with but a touch. Well, it's a, it's a little more than a touch, I suppose. Baufak, do you mind if I... Ah, good. 
Now relax as I just slip inside. There we go. Doesn't that feel good? Don't you feel more energized? Now show me what you've got. Oh my, that is impressive. I'll be thinking about what we did together for a long time. Oh, and don't worry, it's, it's normal to be tired after. But I'm not ready to call it a day quite yet. Fishmaster Stufflebean, I don't suppose you'd be interested in... Ah, oh, glad to hear. Now I'll just slide right inside you. All the way in. Just feel it. Feel yourself at your best. Doesn't it feel like we can do anything when we're like this? Ah, yes, that's right. Do it just like that. Just like that. Your powers are strong, Stufflebean. Oh, the other Gene Nationals are going to hear about you. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode alongside original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, Shadowcat faces an old nemesis. And Excalibur gets high on evolution. Uh, someone said that this dude that beat the the chess grandmaster, um, was getting perfect moves signaled to him from somebody who was looking them up, like, through a chess computer, by different vibration patterns of anal beads that he had in his butt. Which, you know, honestly, if that's true, fucking let him win anyway. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's why he just conceded. <laughs> I just, I, I don't know what's actually happening there. <laughs> <laughs>